0: ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. The government says the voice referendum is designed to improve the lives of Indigenous Australians, but for some, the jury is still out.
1: I'm feeling confused at the moment uh, as an Aboriginal man because I'm struggling to find some clarity in how the voice is really going to do the things that's been lacking by government for the last 200 years.
0: Hi, I'm Carly Williams. I'm a Kwandamuka woman and the ABC's National Indigenous Correspondent. I'm joining you from Gadigal land of the Eora Nation. And I'm Frank Kelly, also here on Gadigal land in Sydney.
2: And this is The Voice Referendum Explained. <music>
0: So, Fred Hooper, he is a warrior man. He was there at the Constitutional Convention in Uluru when many of us first heard about The Voice back in 2017. And even he's confused. Fran, maybe we need to go back to Uluru.
1: I think our people are over symbolism. We're past the point where...
2: Um, symbolism is going to cut it these days. We need our people to be empowered. On the 26th of May in 2017, a group of Indigenous leaders met at Uluru.
3: Australia has to hear us, for goodness sake. How many times do we have to tell you?
2: For four days in the shadow of the rock, this constitutional convention debated what form recognition of First Nations Australians should take in our constitution. And the answer they came up with is the Uluru Statement from the Heart.
3: In 1967 we were counted, in 2017 we seek to be heard. We leave base camp and start our trek across this vast country and we invite you to walk with us in a movement of the Australian people for a better future.
2: That's the first time we heard that, Carly. Mm -hmm. That's Megan Davis. She's a cobble-cobble woman. She's also a professor specialising in constitutional and human rights law. And she was the very first person to read out loud the Uluru Statement from the Heart at The Rock in 2017.
3: So the one pager that is the Uluru Statement from the Heart is a logic for the Australian people as to why we seek constitutional recognition. What we wanted was a referendum and for the Australian people to support us in that And so that is what the Uluru Statement from the Heart is. It contains the call for a constitutionally enshrined voice to the Parliament, and it asks Australians to walk with us in a movement of the Australian people for a better future.
2: So we heard there, Megan, say that the Uluru Statement from the Heart is a one-page document. Now, there's actually been a bit of a stoush over that, Carly, which we'll come back to. But what led to the Uluru Statement from the Heart?
0: Well, calls for constitutional recognition for Indigenous Australians goes Back a hundred years, we spoke about this in episode one, the BART petitions, and there was a lot of blood, sweat, and tears and advocacy that brought us to this point, but The steps that got us to the voice referendum, there was this thing called the Referendum Council. It was set up by the coalition government and it was its job to figure out how to best recognise Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in Australia's constitution. Over 2016 and 2017, the council set up these 12 dialogue meetings across the country. Delegates were invited and there was about 100 First Nations people on average at each of these 12 meetings.
2: Okay, so that's quite a lot of people, really.
0: It is a lot of people, and even though we all weren't in the room, when you consider the population of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in this country, it's still a significant, this is what advocates say, consultation process. And what did they come up with? After those months of meetings, it all came together at Uluru where delegates put forward the Uluru Statement, the sequence of reforms, voice, treaty, truth in that order. There was also something then in the statement, the word
2: makarata, which I'd never heard before. What's
0: makarata? It's a Yongu word and it means the coming together after a conflict. And delegates have used this word, makarata, to describe the process to get to treaty. But Fran, this is all back in twenty seventeen. I'm wondering what why has it taken so long to get to the referendum that they asked for?
2: Yeah, well that's a good question. Malcolm Turnbull was the Prime Minister back in twenty seventeen, and when he was handed the Uluru statement from the heart, his first reactions were really quite negative. He described it as a he said the voice would be a third chamber of, of the parliament. And he said it's just Australians would never go for that. I don't think it's a good idea. And if it were put up in a referendum, it would go okay, down in flames. I, to... I do not believe a, what would in, in effect be a third chamber of parliament available only to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander okay. people is consistent with our uh, constitutional uh, So a pretty flat out rejection from Malcolm Turnbull right from the top. And those who'd been, you know, worked on the Uluru Statement, they were just gutted. The Prime Minister labelling the voice a third chamber of the Parliament, it was not only misleading, it was also politically devastating because it it, it, was a, it was a description that stuck. It had struck a chord and really those people have been working on this process ever since, have been trying to build the momentum back to get it back from that moment.
0: But recently hasn't Malcolm Turnbull changed his
2: tune on this? He has. He now says that he regrets calling it a third chamber. Um, he still says he has misgivings about the voice but he will vote yes on referendum day because it remains the only form of constitutional recognition that Aboriginal people are asking for. And I think it's worth noting that Barnaby Joyce, who was the first MP to use the term, has also since apologised and acknowledged he was mistaken. But Carly, Malcolm Turnbull and his government, they're not the only ones who were not happy with the voice, were they?
0: Yeah, even in the early stages, there was disagreement amongst Indigenous Australians, For different reasons. Fred Hooper, who we heard from at the top of this episode, walked out of the 2017 Uluru Convention in protest.
1: Well, look, we support the Uluru Statement. Don't get me wrong. The Murawari Nation supports the Uluru Statement. We don't support the processes that they're going through at the moment. We believe truth-telling should be told first, then an agreement-making then a voice if our Aboriginal people wanted.
0: Fred's part of what's been called the progressive black no camp. He'll vote no, but that's because he thinks the voice shouldn't come first. He wants truth first, which for Fred means an apology, but right from the top. It needs to be King Charles, who's
1: the head of the institution, standing on country in Australia, delivering an apology in the same manner that his mother, the late you know, Queen Elizabeth, where she went to New Zealand or Aotearoa,
3: This is the first time the Queen has ever signed any law in public. And another first, this law includes an apology to Māori. It reads, the Crown expresses its profound regret and apologizes unreservedly for the loss of lives because of the hostilities arising from its invasion.
1: She dressed in their cloak. She delivered the apology in person. That's the type of apology that we need.
2: Wow, Fred's aiming high. He wants the King. And he's not the only one. Actually, independent Senator Lydia Thorpe, who's associated now with something called the Black Sovereign Movement, she has come out recently and said she too wants King Charles to pay a visit. She wants him at the table talking treaty, though Lydia Thorpe now actually wants the whole referendum process scrapped.
0: The voice is the window dressing for constitutional recognition. We have rejected constitutional recognition before. It is It is a 20-year-old Howard-era policy created with the explicit purpose of undermining sovereignty. We are merrily pointing out that there is no progress, that there is false hope, and that we deserve better. So in fact,
2: Lydia Thorpe is saying, let's go back to the drawing board, but both she and Fred Hooper certainly think that the voice shouldn't come first. It should be truth and treaty first. But Megan Davis, who was there at Uluru too, remember, she says the overwhelming opinion in the room at Uluru was that the first priority should be enshrining the voice in the constitution.
3: The the process is not contested by the 200 people that stood in the room, the consensus. It's contested by the seven people that walked out. But the way that news works is that negative news sells better than positive news. So nobody ever talks to the 200 people that stayed. They only talk to the seven that walked. But it was a historic consensus. We all agreed to the Uluru Statement from the Heart and the voice to Parliament as the primary reform. And that is an important point
2: for Australian history. So we've got contested history here, Carly.
0: Exactly. And now on the no side, we've got two very different camps. The progressive black no, represented by people like Lydia Thorpe and Fred Hooper, who say the voice doesn't do enough. And then there's the conservative no, Peter Dutton, Jacinta Numpagimpa-Price, who say the voice is too legally risky, it's too radical, and there's too many unknowns. And there's not too many things that these two no camps agree on. It's not like they're out campaigning together or anything like that. It would be awkward. (laughs) It would be. But what they both question is did the Uluru Statement and the Uluru Dialogues, Speak for all mob.
2: Yeah, and this has really been growing into a concerted attack on the voice, that it's elitist, that it's the elites who gave us the voice, that it's the elites who were driving the constitutional convention back at Uluru in 2017. Megan Davis, again, says that's just plain wrong.
3: We didn't want politicians and we didn't want CEOs of community control health organisations, what many grassroots communities would call the black elites because they have a say. They just have to pick up the phone and the media reports everything that they say. This process was for those people who never get to have a say. They were people from community with, you know, low satisfaction jobs, low income jobs. We had to move it to the weekends because they're not bureaucrats or politicians or academics that can do stuff during the work. There are people with real jobs who had to do it on the weekend. Um, elites is just a very easy and simple tagline to throw around to diminish people but that word does not describe the people who participated in the Uluru Dialogues.
2: You can really hear Megan Davis's frustrations there I reckon Carly about this criticism that the statement was written for elites by elites and it's not the only criticism going around about the Uluru Statement. As we heard at the top of the episode Megan Davis was emphatic that the Uluru Statement is a one-page document But there's been a bit of a campaign from people like Peter Credlin on Sky and others suggesting that talking about it as a one-page only is a cover-up. There are, in fact, another 26 pages, and on those pages are claims by Aboriginal Australians for reparation and compensation. The Prime Minister was asked about this in Question Time.
0: Yeah, but he dismissed it as a conspiracy theory. They're
1: struggling to get their scares straight. I mean, what role did Marcia Langton play in the faking of the moon landing? There's a whole lot of projection going on here, Mr Speaker. More projection than a film festival.
0: But Fran, even Megan Davis has said in the past that it's a longer document and we should read it.
2: Well, that's true. But the Uluru Statement itself, the one signed by those people at Uluru on that day in 2017, is the one page thing we've all seen. But there are other pages attached to it under a heading called Our Story. Mm. And those pages include comments from the people that were at the 12 dialogues you talked about earlier, Mm. including demands for Australians to be told what happened to them after white settlement.
0: Yeah, but friends, that's not what we're voting for at this referendum. Next week, we'll take a look at some issues that The Voice could address and if it could work, because a lot of people are still trying to understand how The Voice could tackle the areas of entrenched disadvantage. That's the whole point of it,
2: really. Thanks for listening, and while you're here, why don't you subscribe so you never miss an episode? You can find us on the ABC Listen app. This podcast is called The Voice Referendum Explained, and we film it too, so if you want to watch the podcast to take this experience beyond your ears, you can search for The Voice Referendum Explained on iview. See you, Carly. Bye, Fran.